Good morning, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. My name is Daniel. Uh, I am one of the pastors. and I uh, just want to say thank you uh, to those of you that stand up and share during congregational prayer, others of you that maybe you've wanted to stand up and just want to encourage you to, to let your request be known. Uh, it's good to hear from you and we want to pray for you and uh, it's good to do that together in a community. Uh, but we are in a series uh, this morning, uh, third week of a series that we've called Supper with Friends, a study of meals with Jesus. We're looking primarily at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I, I said this a few weeks ago when we started that the New Testament has two sayings that show why the Son of Man came. That the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But there's only one way in which the New Testament states how the Son of Man came. One saying that shows how Jesus' method of seeking and saving the lost really is. It's this, that he came, the Son of Man came, eating and drinking. Jesus hosted parties, he went to parties, he ate and he drank, and it was one of the main ways in which he proclaimed the truth about himself and he reached out to the world around him. So this morning, we're going to look at a very large meal, a great banquet, and Jesus is the host of this meal. It's familiar to many. It's the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand. We're going to look at Luke 9, verses 7 through 20. Hopefully, you'll see why these verses were chosen as our passage. This is God's word to us this morning. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to, to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that you would feed us this morning. I pray that we would be satisfied, that we would be contented, that we would leave here full and happy, you having met us where we are and pointed us to yourself, that this morning we would encounter 
the living Jesus. And I do pray that, Holy Spirit, you would use the word of God to press upon our spirits the truth of who you are, that we might leave here different because you've spoken to us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. Lord, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, over the last three to four decades, there has been a 30% decrease in families eating together. Over that same time period, there's been a 45% decline in entertaining friends. On average, the average number of dinners eaten together for someone is three meals a week, three dinners a week. And the average length of dinner is 20 minutes. A very inevitable result of this is an increase in the feelings of loneliness and isolation. When people gather in public, even at something like a Bible study, it's very possible to remain at a distance from others. You can control what's revealed about yourself and what others, uh, are, are others are controlling what they reveal about themselves, but a meal can bring you close. In a meal, it's hard to hide who you are. It's being revealed. Who you are and who others are is being revealed. Now, in the Mason household, we've, we've just started trying and attempting to eat dinner as a family. We've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and it's really hard to eat a meal together, sit down, and, but we've started to do it recently. And at the meal, we've allowed either myself or Rachel to ask questions to our boys and for us to answer. And, and so we'll ask questions like, what, what are the best, the two, your two favorite things from the day? Uh, and everybody has to, to answer the question of your choosing can be asked and everybody responds. This is a great way for us to learn about each other, a great way for us to reveal ourselves in our days. Uh, about a month ago, I had gathered some of my best friends for my 40th birthday in Alabama and friends from all walks of life. And at dinner one night, one of my friends, Chris, said, hey, in our family and with my friends in Birmingham, we, we, we do birthday questions. And what that means is whoever's birthday it is, any, anybody at the table can pepper them with questions and they have to answer the questions. Uh, and this was, I found, a very powerful moment for me. Uh, friends that know me deeply but were asking questions that I'd never shared before. And it was a time for me to reveal more of myself and for these friends to love me as I was revealing myself. Meals reveal. And in the revealing, it fosters genuine relationship and friendships, a time to be known and to know others. That's why we as a church are encouraging you this year to, and spe specifically in this series, to throw dinner parties with one another, to, to throw block parties in your neighborhood. It's why we're going to do dinners for six and uh, Thanksgiving potluck, and we're going to throw a big five-year anniversary party because meals reveal. It's a great way to know others. And the meal that we're looking at this morning in Luke 9 reveals much about Jesus. Our passage begins with and ends with the same question of Jesus' identity. In verse 9, Herod asked the question of Jesus' identity. Who is this about whom I hear great things? And then verse 18, Jesus asked the question to his disciples. Who do the crowds say that I am? And in between, Jesus hosts this great meal to reveal himself. 
You know, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is one of only two miracles recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The other miracle is the resurrection. So I think God wants us to know something from this feeding of the 5,000, this miracle and this revealing of Jesus. Here are the three things I think at least that he wants us to know. The first is that there is opposition to Jesus. The second thing that this meal reveals is the provision by Jesus. And the last thing that it reveals is the mission of Jesus. The opposition to Jesus, provision by Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. Let's look together first at the opposition to Jesus. In verse 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead by some Elijah, by others one of the prophets of old. Now, just before our passage in Luke, 6, or Luke, Luke 9, 1 through 6, Jesus sends the 12 apostles out into the villages of Galilee, and they're preaching, and they're teaching, and they're healing. And verse 6 says they're doing so with incredible power and authority. And this is what Herod was hearing about. This is what was happening. This is what has Herod perplexed. And in verse 9, Herod asked a question. John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, why does Luke, the author of this passage, put this exchange, verse 7 to 9, right between the apostles ministering in power and then this great meal of Jesus feeding the 5,000? The reason is to reveal that there is opposition to Jesus, that there is an an opposing way of living contrasted to Jesus and his kingdom. Earlier in some of the other gospel accounts of this miracle, there was another meal. Matthew, we see this. There was another meal before the feeding of the 5,000, and it was a meal, a great meal, that Herod hosted. And at Herod's meal, only the elite were invited, and the poor were excluded. At Herod's meal, only the powerful were extended an invitation, and the weak were left out. At Herod's meal, those welcomed were those who could benefit the host. And at Herod's meal, it ended in death, as John the Baptist was beheaded. Herod the Tetrarch is a picture of Rome and Roman rule. For Israel, Rome was a picture of life apart from and in opposition to God. Scripture uses the word world at times to describe this opposing way of living apart from God. Not world in the created world. We, we know that's good, but world in the sense of the way we live apart from God. Broken lives of individuals, broken systems of sin. This is the world, and it opposes Jesus and his kingdom. We live in a world that teaches us, that grooms us to include the elite and exclude the poor. We live in a world that teaches us to befriend those who can benefit us. We live in a world that seeks to ensnare and entrap and enslave us with its toys, luxuries, addictions, and violence. A world that ends in death. The world and its ways are in opposition to Jesus. And this small band of 12 disciples, they're following Jesus and they're facing Herod the tetrarch and the odds seem impossible, but God shows up. God shows up. And living in our world is hard, and we're tempted every day 
We're tempted to not trust Jesus, to doubt Jesus. We are tempted to live by the world's rules of operation and it can feel daunting. And you might come in this morning feeling exhausted and I just want to tell you that God shows over and over, God shows up to reveal to us that his ways are better than the world's ways. It can seem like Herod is asking this question in verse 9, like he's some curious inquirer wanting to know and learn more about Jesus. We, we do have those encounters with Jesus in the scriptures, but this is not what's happening here. Herod isn't this curious inquirer. Herod, Herod represents a malicious enemy who is seeking to oppose Jesus and put him to death, just like he did John the Baptist. I was out on Wednesday night, uh, and I heard uh, this group, there were three to four people to my left, uh, and they started talking about Christianity. And I, I didn't get in, into a conversation with them, I just kind of listened. And, and they, they weren't asking questions uh, about Christianity. They weren't like pontificating about the truths of Christianity, what's true, what's not true. Uh, they were mocking Christianity. They were making fun of Christianity. Uh, and I, I got sad and I get it. I don't expect everyone to be a Christian. I pray they will. I don't expect everyone to believe what I believe. I, I do pray for that. And I know at the same time that many have turned away from Christianity because of us as Christians who live in a contrary way to Jesus and his kingdom. We can be hypocritical. But it was a reminder to me that the world as it represents living apart from God mocks Jesus, mocks Christianity, that there is true opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. But God shows up. And here's the second thing that we see revealed about Jesus in this great meal is the provision by Jesus. In verses 10 through 17. Look at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Remember verse 1 to 6. They're doing powerful things. All that they had done, and he took them, and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, the apostles and Jesus are exhausted. They're tired. They've been ministering and healing. They're peopled out. They need time away. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he, Jesus, welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. The first thing about the provision of Jesus that I want to point out is the posture of the provider. The posture of the provider. Jesus is hospitable when exhausted. Jesus welcomed the interruption. He is a gracious host. Now note, he, he's interrupted, not by people who have something to offer him. He welcomes and allows himself to be interrupted by those who need healing. This is Jesus' posture. He welcomes all who come in need. If you've ever encountered someone who gives off the vibe, hey, now's not a good time. Come back at a better time. Uh, this posture, you know, it doesn't even, you don't even need words. It can be communicated just by a look. Uh, I admit that sometimes I give this off. Uh, I can get so focused and in the groove of something that uh, 
sometimes on Wednesdays when I'm kind of writing my sermon and, and thinking that, that staff have come and knocked on my door and I can tell they're like, ooh, now's not a good time. <laughs> and they'll walk away because I just kind of give the look, come back. Now's not the best time. As I've kind of thought about the welcome of Jesus to be interrupted, I, I'm so thankful Jesus doesn't do that to us. That he welcomes us, that he's ready and willing to be interrupted by us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're not a bother to Jesus? That he loves you and he welcomes you and he's ready to receive you as you come in your need, that, that you don't need to come back at a better time, that you don't need to come back when you have your act together, that we can come honestly in our need and his posture is one of welcome. The second thing about this provision reveal, uh, that it reveals is the possession of the recipients. Uh, look at verse 12. The day began to wear away. He had been teaching them all day, spending time with them all day, and then the 12 say, send this crowd away to find lodging and to get provisions. I mean, the disciples are exhausted. I get it. They want to retreat. They want to be alone. And this is not a bad thing. Actually, it's a good thing to retreat and to be alone at times. Jesus wanted to do this. Jesus at other times does it. We're encouraged to do it. But here the disciples are running on empty and Jesus tells them, you give the crowd something to eat. You feed them. They've got no energy. They don't have the resources to do this. Five loaves, two fish. And there are 5,000 men. And that word men is gender specific, which means that there are probably 20,000 people total, men, women, and children. It's a hunger crisis. And the disciples are flat worn out. They don't have the resources to feed 50, much less 20,000 people. And Jesus says, you have the responsibility. You feed them. And the irony is that in Luke 9, verse 3, when Jesus sends them out on mission, he tells his disciples, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even two tunics. Can you imagine what they're thinking? What in the world, Jesus? <laughs> We're exhausted. We don't have anything. In fact, you told us to take nothing. And now you're saying we have the responsibility to feed 20,000 people? Listen, this is what Jesus is revealing. That the disciples possess exactly what they need in order to know and understand Jesus and his provision. They possess nothing. Therefore, they must rely on Jesus. Be dependent on him. The disciples feel their inability and their inadequacy. It's impossible to feed 20,000 with five loaves and two fish. And Jesus is saying, true. And what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is a crucial moment for the disciples. This is a major reveal of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been exhausted and tired, find yourself feeling like there's nothing left in your tank, that you've got no more bandwidth, no more margin. I know you have. I, I have felt it many times. I've said it many times, and I've heard many of you say it many times. I'm just tired. I've got nothing left. I've got no more room in my schedule. 
Well, when we feel exhausted and our tank is empty and we've got no more margins, we can live in one of two ways. There's really two options for us. The first is that we can feel our inadequacy, inadequacy, which we all do, and we can start scheming for ways to manage life and manage our situation. We start to scheme how to manage our life, and, and we can manage our life by numbing the pain of our inadequacy by alcohol or pain medication or TV or food. You can manage life by cutting corners at work and being untruthful and lacking integrity. You can manage your life by working harder and pulling longer hours and running the treadmill of performance. All of these are ways of trying to drown out the sense of feeling inadequate. They're all ways we manage our life. The second way we can live when feeling our inadequacy is to depend and rely on Jesus, to meet us in our inadequacy and to trust that he is sufficient. We started meeting every day for prayer as a staff team, 11.15, kind of a order of the day, middle of the day, 11.15 to 11.25, 11.30. Whoever's in the, in the office, let's just gather and pray for 10 to 15 minutes. Well, this Wednesday, I'm, I'm feeling the crunch, probably giving off that look and get away from me. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm feeling the crunch of the week and the weeks ahead and preparing to preach and teach and thinking about the future of the church and I'm working hard and I completely forget about prayer time. I'm working. And I look up at 1130 and the staff team is closing in prayer and I finally kind of realize I, I missed it. And what I needed to do instead of pound away at my desk was turn to God in prayer. What I needed was to feel my lack and my need and cry out independence. Needed to remind myself God is sufficient. He's the one who's going to feed you. He's the one who's going to lead this church, not me. You see, we can either manage our life or we can depend on him. The last thing revealed about the provision is that it's plenteous. It's plenteous. Look at verses 14 to 17. Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it, feeds the 20,000, and there are 12 baskets left over. This miracle would have hearkened Israel back to Moses and Elijah. Moses was the one who led Israel in a desolate place, in the wilderness, Exodus 16, and that's where God rained down manna from heaven, providing for their need. And Elisha, the prophet who followed Elijah, wore Elijah's cloak. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, a hundred men come before Elisha. And Elisha says to Israel, you give them something to eat. And 2 Kings 4 says they ate and they had leftovers. Here we see Jesus is the greater Moses. Leading Israel out of slavery and bondage once and for all, leading a much better exodus. And he is the greater Elijah, providing for all of our needs with plenty of leftovers, 12 baskets left over. Verse 17, they're all fed and everybody leaves with to-go boxes. They're gonna feed them for days. Tim Chester says, we need, the church needs a theology of leftovers. That too often as Christians, we operate on a theology of scarcity. That God's not enough, we don't have enough, we don't have what it takes, that we can't and that we won't. But as Christians, we have everything we need. The Holy Spirit applies the finished work of Christ. We have life in him and we have it abundantly. 
We are a people of abundance. God has provided plentifully in the work in the person of Jesus. 2 Peter 1.3 says we have everything that we need for life and godliness. The last thing revealed in this great meal, this great banquet, is the mission of Jesus. Look at verses 18 to 20. After the feeding of the 20,000, Jesus is with the disciples and he asks a similar question that Herod asked, who do the crowd say that I am? And the response is similar. Some John the Baptist, some Elijah, others a prophet of old. And Peter, oh, Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You're the Christ of God. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ of God means the anointed one, which was reference to the Messiah. Peter's profession is the big reveal. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just a wonder worker. He's not just a good example. He is the Messiah. And everyone knew that when Messiah came, he would redeem in a greater way than Moses that he would restore all that was wrong in this world and put it right. That the world would no longer live in opposition to God, but in harmony and peace with God. And when Messiah would come, he would also provide and host a meal. He would provide a meal, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 says. And this meal will be a meal of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. In this meal, he will swallow up death and wipe away all tears from all faces, and we will rejoice in salvation. On the Messiah's menu is death. God himself will swallow it up, which means this feast of rich food and aged wine is a perpetual feast, an eternal party that the Messiah brings. He will defeat death and put the world right and enable everyone to enjoy God's presence. This is the mission of Jesus. This is what he accomplishes. And he reveals how he accomplishes it by hosting another meal with his disciples in the Last Supper. And in that meal, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, Jesus secures the victory of his mission as the Messiah by going to the cross. By being put to death, he swallows up death. His body broken so our broken lives could be made whole. He suffered what appeared to be defeat to those in opposition to him, but he rose victorious and conquered his enemy. And here's the thing. We get to participate with Jesus in his mission. As the redeemed, we participate. The first thing of importance though, is how do we answer the question, who do we say he is? That's the first thing of importance, the biggest question you will ever be asked. Who do you say Jesus is? Many in this world will say Jesus is a good teacher. He did great miracles. He's a good example, and some of you are at that place. But I will say that that response still leaves us hopeless when we face a world filled with suffering, hunger, violence, 
sin in our own lives, sin in broken systems. All of us know that the world's not the way it's supposed to be, that something must be done. Our first response to Jesus has to be a profession like Peter. Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah, the one who will restore all that is broken. And once we've made this profession, we participate like the disciples. Verse 16, the disciples take the food and they set it before the crowds. They're participating in the feeding of the 20,000. And remember, the disciples' possession is nothing. They don't have anything. They simply received the work and the grace of Jesus, and then they gave the work and the grace of Jesus to the people. They did nothing but delivered the work of Jesus. Have you ever been to a, a really good restaurant and just had a great meal, a really good meal, and the server comes up to you after you've eaten and, and you say, man, you are an amazing cook. Thank you. This was such a good meal. No. You wouldn't compliment the server. You compliment the one who made the meal? The server just delivers the meal. That's who we are. Those who follow Jesus are merely servers who exist for the glory of the one who provides the meal. We point to Jesus. We talk about what he's done and what he offers. We serve his provision. We point to his finished work and the perpetual feast that he will bring. Let me just say right here, that if we try, and this is a reminder to me in large part, if we try to minister to people and love the world in our own strength, if we try to, to love and minister to be seen or we fish for compliments in doing so, inevitably we'll burn out. We'll flame out and we'll fall out and, we feel, and we'll feel like we have nothing left. But just like the disciples, we have responsibility in this mission to the world, but we fulfill our responsibility by boasting in our inability. In our inability, he's sufficient. And he feeds us and he satisfies us. And in turn, we offer the world Jesus, not ourselves. Can you reach out to your neighbor and have them over for dinner? Can you throw up a block party as a city group? Can you get involved with a nonprofit that's tackling an issue of justice? At times, it feels like you can't do it. You don't have the time, you don't have the resources, you don't have the bandwidth, and here's the good news. Jesus wants us to know we possess nothing. We have nothing, nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. We don't offer the world ourselves and our resources. We offer the world Jesus and his work. We offer the world the hope that comes with Messiah. Robert Morrison was a famous missionary to China. And in 1805, the London Missionary Society recruited Morrison to go to China. And it was during the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And, and so the only British ships that were traveling to China belonged to the East India Company. And they refused to transport missionaries. So Morrison devised a new plan. He decided to come to the United States with hope to book passage to China. And when the owner of the ship heard about Morrison's plans, he, he was skeptical. And he said, and so, Mr. Morrison, 
Do you really expect that you will make an impression on the idolatry of the great Chinese empire? Morrison quickly replied, no, sir, but I expect God will. And through Morrison's ministry and all of his weaknesses, God made an impression on China's idolatry that still bears fruit to this day. Christ Central, it's when we know our wits end. It's when we know we have nothing to offer that we can profess the Christ and that we can participate in his mission and we can see what God will do. Can we impact this city? Can you give enough so that your neighbor is finally persuaded to trust Jesus? Can you throw enough dinner parties that's going to sway people over to, to follow Jesus? No, you can't. I cannot. But God can, and God will. We profess the Christ, and we participate by welcoming all people. And we pray that Jesus is revealed in our doing so. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would, you would feed us when we're exhausted and tired and wondering if you're enough. I pray that our profession would be you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the one who is going to make all things right. And I pray that as we receive your grace, we would be those who extend it to others, that we would be the hands and the feet of Jesus, that, that we would not operate like the world, but that we would reach out to all people, that we would welcome those who come in their need and, and, and that we would love with the love we've received in you. Lord, I, I'm so grateful that you feed us. You feed us through your word and you feed us through this table that we're about to partake of. Would we be filled and would we leave here knowing there is leftovers, there's abundant life, there's plenty with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.